0: Africa, Rise and Shine Africa, Zosa, Africa, Amika, Na Unai.
1: Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the forty-one-meter band to southern Africa and on 152 level 5 kHz on the 19 meter band to far west Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Moussa, Tabisa Lohoko and Figile Mati. In our top stories on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, West African countries step up their fight against Boko Haram, concerns over rising attacks on oil facilities in Nigeria, and disgraced South African sprinter Oscar Pistorius returns to court today for sentencing. In economics, Rwanda and Belgium agreed to increase bilateral trade and in sports news, Lesotho thumped Mauritius in their opening Kasafa Cup match. But first up, the news with Anne Musa.
2: A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. U.S. President Barack Obama has denounced the mass shooting in Florida as an act of terror and hatred, ordering the American flag lowered to half-mast to honor the victims. At least 50 people were killed and 53 more were injured in a shooting at the Pulse Club in Orlando, Florida on Sunday. The Islamic State Militant Group has claimed responsibility for the attack. The attack, described as the worst mass shooting incident in recent history, of the United States has also been condemned by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Matthew Wells reports.
3: The UN chief Ban Ki-moon was unequivocal in his description of the attack in the city of Orlando, Florida, in the early hours of Sunday. In a statement issued by his spokesperson, he described it as an horrific attack and extended his deepest condolences to the families of the victims. He also expressed his solidarity with the government and people of the United States. News reports say that at least 50 were killed and more than 50 injured when a heavily armed gunman took hostages inside a nightclub that was described as being popular with the LGBT community.
2: Libyan forces are patrolling Sirte after seizing control from Islamic State militants. Forces made up of fighters from Misrata kept advancing last week into the Sirte city centre. The forces are part of the operation supported by the UN-backed unity government, which arrived in Tripoli in March and has been working to establish its authority. The Islamic State started to advance into Libya in 2014 as political turmoil and conflict in the country worsened. Rwandas expelled about 400 Burundians back to their country, accusing some of them of espionage and fueling tensions between the two neighbours whose relations have been strained by Burundi's political crisis. It's the second such expulsion in about a month and brings the total number of Burundians deported over the period to at least 1,700. Burundi has accused Rwanda of interfering in its political crisis, which has seen Burundian government forces clash with protesters and rebels who say the president violated the constitution by standing for a third term last year. Nigeria says it has agreed to Cameroon's voluntary return of 80,000 Nigerian refugees where fled the Boko Haram Islamic insurgency. Nigerian officials have said Cameroon was threatening to force the repatriation. Cameroon previously has dumped thousands on the border. Nigerian emergency agency spokesperson Sunny Dati says an agreement for their return and in a dignified manner has been signed by the UNHCR's refugee agency, Nigeria and Cameroon. The UN says another 600,000 are displaced in the region. And finally, South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has described the current violence in KwaZulu-Natal as completely unacceptable. He was delivering a keynote address at the launch of the ANC's provincial local government election manifesto. The province has experienced a wave of killings of politicians in some cases due to disputes arising from the finalization of candidate lists of those who will contest the August 3rd municipal polls. President Zuma has strongly condemned the violence which he says is political Motivated.
4: The people of kwazulu Natal know too well the pain brought about by political violence and they have worked very hard to defeat violence and create conditions in which they all live in peace and harmony. We must do everything possible to prevent violence and assist the police to apprehend perpetrate Violence has no place. In our democracy, let us unite and defeat those who are trying to sow mayhem through killing people in this province.
2: That's the news. it lands at 830 Central African time.
0: Africa, rise
1: and shine. Thank you, Anna. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa, rise and shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, Cameroon and Nigeria and Benin military are putting up a regional offensive in Lake Chad and the Sambisa Forest, strongholds of Boko Haram as... Niger and Chadian troops attacked the terrorists in the Niger. The attack is in response to a recent attack that left 26 soldiers dead in Niger. Muki reports.
4: Yeah.
5: Cameroon soldiers sing what has become their traditional rallying song as they get set for an expedition to free the Lake Chad Basin area and the Sambisa Forest from Boko Haram. Cameroon Military spokesperson Colonel DJ Bajek says the fighters have, for close to a month now, been harassing the population of the area, stealing food, supplies, and killing.
4: He says
5: within the past three weeks, no day passes by without acts of exaction and killings by Boko Haram. He says Cameroon soldiers reacted violently after an armed attack on their positions. General Jacob Koji, one of Cameroon's commander of troops fighting the Boko Haram insurgency, says it is from Mora and some northern towns prone to Boko Haram attacks that at least a thousand soldiers of the Joint Military Task Force, comprising soldiers from Cameroon, Nigeria, Chad, Benin, and Niger, will organize raids on the remaining Boko Haram strongholds.
6: This line of defense is the infantry and uh, supported by the artillery. good day till Zeleved is the Mount Mandara Hills and after you have a plane from Zelevet till Lake Chad it is more than 400 kilometers
5: he says their strategy is that while Niger and Chadian troops attack Boko Haram in Niger they will organize raids to stop the terrorist group from escaping to or getting reinforcements from their hideouts in the Lake Chad area and Sambisa Jacob Koji said the soldiers will not find the cross-border operation easy because the insurgents are increasingly using landmines and the population they hold hostage as human shields. The planned offensive is in response to Boko Haram's attack on a military post in Bosu, Niger's Difa region that killed 26 soldiers, including two from Nigeria, and set thousands fleeing for their lives. Niger said at least 55 insurgents were killed in that deadliest attack on its territory. The United Nations announced that 55,000 people had been displaced. Niger President muhammadu isufu after the incident, met with Chad's President Idris Debi Idnu, who promised to deploy 2,000 troops to help Niger fight the terrorists whose barbarism affects the whole Lake Chad region, including Niger, Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad, and Benin. This month, the UNHCR reported that the Boko Haram insurgency in Nigeria and its spillover to neighboring Cameroon, Chad, and Niger have caused the displacement of over 2.7 million people, generating multiple challenges, especially in the Lake Chad Basin. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka.
1: Another explosion hit a pipeline operated by a subsidiary of Nigeria state oil company in the West African country's restive delta region last Thursday. The Nigerian Petroleum Development Company pipeline at the Sanomi Creek in the Ogi Digben area, of Wari Southwest exploded around 8 p.m. local time. Militants have carried out a spate of attacks on energy facilities in the southern delta region in the last few months. More from Martin Iwi, researcher at Institute of Security Studies.
7: Well, since last year uh, and even before President Jonathan left, uh, there were indications that uh, after his departure, uh, the Niger Delta issue will certainly resurface. Uh, But at the time, we could not predict that it would be a new organization. Most people at the time were predicting uh, the resurgence of uh, men. Uh, But now we have a complete new organization calling itself uh, the Niger Delta Avengers. Uh, But I think the uh, rise, again, there are no new issues. Uh, It's still the same uh, issues uh, that, you know, uh, have been facing the Niger Delta region. The, The fact that... Uh, They believe that the oil industries uh, in that region, particularly the exploitation of oil and other minerals, um, it's not benefiting the the local people. It's not benefiting the region. It's not benefiting the population. And therefore, um, they are asking for a redistribution of the oil wealth. They are asking for the oil industry to be environmentally conscious, uh, not to further degradate the environment of the Niger Delta, which, as we have seen in the past, there have been so many oil leaks, so many oil spills, uh, which have really compounded the uh, environmental and ecological uh, issues of the region. So I think these people, uh, the so-called Niger Delta Avengers, are asking for Nigeria to stop and to intervene uh, in order to rescue the Niger Delta people from this uh, environmental degradation
8: but does this action then by the Niger Delta Avengers not have the ability to compromise Nigeria's status as one of the leading oil producers
7: most certainly that's their goal uh, you know their intention is to cripple Nigeria's production of oil as they have uh, claimed themselves they want the oil production in Nigeria to be zero so which means that um, Nigeria will no longer have that capacity to produce even a single barrel of oil per day um, because of, uh, you know, if the issues that uh, the Niger Delta Avengers are fighting for are not addressed. At least this is what they have claimed and this is what they they are fighting for. Um, they have actually uh, declared that uh, they would not intentionally target uh, individuals, innocent people, or even uh, the military. Um, but their target will remain the oil facilities, the oil infrastructures in the Niger Delta or anything that um, has to do with the production of oil uh, in the Niger Delta. They will target that. Uh, we've seen um, in recent attacks, uh, you know, the, the fact that uh, some soldiers have been killed, uh, and which is a concern, which, uh, again, um, is in contradiction to their statement.
8: Now, apparently the NDA has allegedly rejected an offer to start talks with the government and has instead demanded um, the award of 60% of oil blocks to indigenous people of Niger Delta as one of the conditions to cease these attacks on oil installations in the region. Is this demand possible to adhere to, in your view?
7: You see, we never really expected that uh, you know the offer of dialogue by the administration of Muhammadu uh, Buhari, will materialize because it's still too soon. This is still an organization that we know very little about. Um, They have not actually really stamped their feet on the ground to prove to be a party or an actor to reckon with. Um, But yes, the kind of activities that they've been doing have been disastrous and very deleterious for the Nigerian economy uh, and for the oil uh, production also. So um, what we thought uh, was that probably, as Bukhari had initially signaled, that they will use military force and other measures. Uh, if you look at the website of the uh, NDA, they said that, look, if you look at the appropriation or the ownership of oil facilities or oil wells, uh, oil uh, factories uh, in, in the Niger Delta, uh, 90% of it belongs to uh, northerners. And again, this uh, is uh, really uh, um, poking tension in a very sensitive uh, area, particularly the, uh, that regional divide between the South and the North. And truly, they are making their fight to be a southern fight because, uh, you know, they claim that the Niger Delta Avengers are not just militants from the Niger Delta or limited to the Ajors, who previously have dominated, you know, militancy and insurgency in the Niger Delta. But they claim that this time um, they, they are in alliance with uh, separatist groups such as uh, MASOP um, and other southern uh, organizations, which means that they are broadening support. Uh, and if they succeed, uh, you know, the Niger Delta issue, which had really been a very, to some extent, even a tribal issue, will now become regional, you know, affecting the whole of the South. And I think that uh, this is, uh, uh, it will be an outcome that will not be good for Nigeria. It will not be good for anyone because if Nigeria's capacity to produce oil is crippled, I think every single Nigeria will feel the pinch and it's not going to be a small one. It's going to hurt every individual in Nigeria.
9: Good news for our listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605 four 47 So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance.
1: South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has called for an end of politically motivated killings and violence in the Guazul-Natal province. The president was delivering a keynote address at the launch of the ANC's provincial local government election manifesto in Peter Pietermaritzburg yesterday. The province has experienced a wave of killings of high-profile politicians due to disputes arising from the finalization of candidate lists of those who will contest the August 3rd municipal polls. Tsepo Iganeng reports.
6: A show of force as President Jacob Zuma leads hundreds of people in song at the pact Stadium in Peter Marisburg, With only two months left before the crucial local government elections, the ruling party has pulled out all stops to ensure that it consolidates its support base in KwaZulu-Natal. The province, which is currently the ANC stronghold, has been hit by a series of political killings of some of the party's senior leaders and members. About eight people have been killed in the past three months, and there are growing fears that the security situation might deteriorate during the current election campaign period. President Zuma has strongly condemned recent acts of violence, describing them as unacceptable. The
4: people of KwaZulu-Natal know too well the pain brought about by political violence and have worked very hard to defeat violence and create conditions in which they all live in peace and harmony. We must do everything possible to prevent violence and assist the police to apprehend perpetrators. Violence has no place in our democracy. Let us unite and defeat those who are trying to sow mayhem through killing people in this province. It's not acceptable. Kosatu
6: presidents to Lamini also wait into the saga. We're coming down here
4: with a clear message no one must die to be a candidate counselor. Let us stop killing each other. If on the third of August one of us emerges as a, ca- a counselor, we shall all rally behind that person and support that person because it shall not be that person it shall be the african national congress meanwhile president zuma has pleaded with
6: anc members to accept the outcomes of the nomination process of candidate councillors factional battles have led to violent clashes between members squabbling over who should make it to the final list of preferred candidates to contest municipal elections Some party members have opted to contest the elections as independents after being left
4: out from the party's final nomination list. At this critical stage of our campaign, members of the ANC must observe organizational discipline and show maximum unity of purpose. Let me reiterate that the ANC process to select councillors has been closed we call all our members and supporters to accept the outcomes of our democratic processes
6: president zuma has also stressed the need for the ANC to register an overwhelming
4: victory at the local government polls the ANC must win the August 3rd elections convincingly and decisively we must do so in order to have the necessary majority in all councils to fast-track the transformation of our society. ANC KwaZulu Natal Chairperson
6: C. Zikalala has called for unity between the party and its alliance partners, KOSATU and the South African Communist Party. The recent recall of former Premier Senzu has caused tension within the tripartite alliance. Tsepo Ika Neng, SBC News, in Peter Marisberg.
1: Leader of South Africa's opposition party, IFP, Buthelezi, has called on supporters not to vote for party members contesting the local government elections as independent candidates. He was speaking at the party's election manifesto launch at the King Zuelitini Stadium at Umlazi in Gwazunlatao. The IFP has committed itself to accelerating service delivery, including water, sanitation and electricity, and for municipalities to be the drivers of economic development in order to create jobs. Meanwhile, party candidates signed a pledge committing themselves to clean governance. Vusi Makosini and Skangiwim Tiani (laughs) report.
10: IFP leader Mangosutubut Buthelezi arrived at the King's Reditini Stadium to thunderous cheers. Scores of party supporters were not deterred by the cloudy skies and chilly weather from witnessing the launch of the party's election promises. Thousands of party members dressed in their colorful regalia waved party flags and sang the party's praises. <laughs> The veteran IFP leader warned supporters about party members who have opted to contest the elections as independent candidates. At least 99 independent candidates are contesting the elections in KwaZulu-Natal. Buthelezi says none of them are being supported by the IFP.
11: Regrettably, because we cannot have two candidates standing in the same ward, a few IFP members have also chosen to stand as independent candidates. This is a decision they have taken of their own accord and is not endorsed by the IFP. There is no truth in the message that they are standing with the support of the blessing of the party. A vote for an independent candidate simply takes a vote away from the IFP. I therefore urge you comrades, not to vote for independent
10: candidates. Butelezi also spoke of the challenges facing the country, including inequality, lack of jobs, and the slow pace of service delivery in some areas. He attributed the slow pace and backlog in service delivery to corruption and mismanagement of funds in municipalities. Butelezi told party supporters that 210 million rand earmarked for municipal infrastructure development had to be returned to the National Treasury after some municipalities in in Guazuru Natal failed to use the funding.
11: Good governance begins in municipalities. This is where your voice is heard and your service delivery needs are met. Thus, it's not just about corruption, mismanagement and wasteful expenditure. We are familiar with violent protests all over the country wanted by ANC members who think that the ANC has failed to deliver services. They go to the extent of burning down municipal offices and councillors' houses. They burnt down schools, libraries.
10: Butelezi's deputy Mzam Mutelezi says they have fielded candidates with integrity for the upcoming municipal elections. The party has 3,000 candidates across the country, with the exception of the Northern Cape.
11: In the process of candidate selection has been such an negative process as far as I'm concerned, but we have tried to make sure that we select people of integrity, people who are honest, and people who will serve the cause of people, not anyone. So the candidates that we'll be presenting today are the people who in South Africa actually need at this point in time.
10: The IFP president also took a pledge committing himself to personally ensuring that party councillors abide by the pledge they have taken. I'm Tiane in Durban.
1: The World Meteorological Organization, WMO, and the World Health Organization, the WHO's Joint Office on Climate Health, says there is a close relationship between climate and diseases such as diarrhea, malaria, meningitis and respiratory ailments which cause death and suffering for millions of people around the globe. Claire Nullis, media officer at the WMO, says that this is showcased in the Climate Service for Health case study project which profiles more than 40 examples of tailored climate services used to manage health
12: risks. The World Health Organization and the World Meteorological Organization, we have a joint office on health and climate. The reason we have this joint office is that obviously climate has a very, very, very big influence on health, be it from droughts, from flooding, um, spread of diseases, etc. And as a result of climate change, we think that the impacts on health will increase That's the bad news. The good news is that we've got more and better knowledge and tools now to try to protect people's health, you know, from droughts and floods. So what we've done is we've compiled a collection of case studies of really sort of best practices from around the world which show how, you know, different countries in different situations have integrated climate information, you know, into public health management and public health programs.
11: And uh, which areas of the globe in particular was this uh, study focusing on in particular?
12: It's a global study. So what we did was we put out a public call for people to submit their case studies. We finished up with about uh, 40 examples of climate services being used to manage health risks. And it's literally from all over the world. So just to give you some examples, Ecuador and Peru in South America, they've set up a binational monitoring network to control dengue, which is a mosquito-borne disease. And they're using climate and health information to try to stop transmissions in the border areas. So obviously, health problems, it's not... To contained to national level, and the same with climate and weather, it it crosses borders. So this is a very good example of cross-border collaboration between two countries, Ecuador and Peru. In Africa, there's a couple of examples. So in Ethiopia, in the Horn of Africa, there's been long-term collaboration and cooperation between the National Meteorological Agency and the Ministry of Health, and so the National Meteorological Agency... Will provide seasonal forecasts of temperature and rainfall, and link this specifically to, you know, the likelihood of severe malaria outbreaks. Health authorities can then use that information to figure out where they need to target prevention campaigns, and you know where they can expect real health problems from malaria outbreaks. Another example, a little bit closer to South Africa, is in Madagascar, a climate and health working group in Madagascar has been providing technical support and disease surveillance information to the Ministry of Health since 2008, and this also has really helped health authorities in Madagascar, which is obviously a very, very poor country, faces a lot of threats from weather, extreme weather, from tropical cyclones. And so by using the climate information, you know, we hope that it can actually make a difference in improving public health outcomes.
7: So, the hot
11: heat countries, how have they coped with this improving their situation when it came to this uh, case study project? The
12: case study project aims to demonstrate that even in countries which don't have many resources, which do face a lot of challenges, such as Madagascar and Ethiopia, by you know, a certain minimum amount of planning and by collaboration between health authorities and the meteorological services, you know, we can actually make a real difference to protecting people's health. And as climate change becomes more pronounced, Obviously, you know, the need for cooperation is going to increase. And this is what we're seeing now on the ground at, at local level and also at national level. And it needs to happen much, much more. I mean, say doctors and the health professionals, they speak a different language. They have a different vocabulary than the meteorological services. So what we need to do is to really to bring them together to make sure that, you know, they really understand each other's needs, what each other c- can contribute and just to bridge the gap between these two separate communities, because we need to. Climate change is a major challenge. It's too big for one sector to face it on its own. So we really do need collaboration and cooperation.
1: That was Claire Nullis, Media Officer at the World Meteorological Organization, on the line from Geneva, speaking to Wandele Kalipa. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
2: A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussan. The headlines Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump has called on President Barack Obama to resign for refusing to, wo- to use the words radical Islam in describing the massacre of 50 people at an Orlando gay club. And a militant group notorious for devastating attacks on Nigeria's oil industry has called for dialogue to end renewed violence that has cut oil output. And Rwanda has expelled about 400 Buruni. Indians back to their country, accusing some of them of espionage and fueling tensions between the two neighbours whose relations have been strained by Burundi's political crisis. Those are the stories making headlines.
1: Thank you, and It's 8.32 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-metre band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-metre band to far west Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1975. Robert Sobukwe, former leader of the banned South African Party, Pan-Africa's Congress, P.A.C., was admitted to practice as an attorney in Kimberley. That was today in history in the year 1975.
7: The world that remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty and deprivation.
11: It is in your hands. To make of our world a better
10: one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day.
1: It is in your
10: hands to make a difference.
1: Arguments for aggravation and mitigation of sentencing in the Oscar Pistorius trial will begin this morning in the Pretoria High Court in South Africa. Last year, the Supreme Court of Appeal overturned the High Court's ruling of culpable homicide, finding the former Paralympian guilty of murder. Pistorius shot and killed his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp at his Pretoria home in February 2013. He was also found guilty of the negligent discharge of a firearm and acquitted on two other gun related charges nomabulani compiled this report outlining expectations for the sentence hearing
13: Oscar Pistorius' legal team is expected to kick off proceedings by calling witnesses whose testimony will help with the mitigation of sentencing. Advocate Barry Rue will lead the evidence on why the Blade Runner should receive a lesser sentence. This could include a psychologist who would testify on Pistorius' state of mind and how the crime, the trial and jail time affected him. A correctional services official may also be called to the witness box to give an account on how the murder convict behaved while serving time in the Hoshi prison in central Pretoria. Criminal law expert and trial commentator Ulrich Roo says it's a high possibility that Pistorius himself will take the stand.
3: He's going to have to prove to the court that you know, he's, he's got remorse for what happened, he's accepted uh, what's happened, he's accepted the fact that he's a convicted murderer And in order for a person to uh, show to the court that the court must have mercy on him, he must show that he is remorseful for his actions.
13: The states will cross-examine the defense witnesses before calling their own. In South African law, there's a prescribed minimum sentence of 15 years imprisonment for a murder conviction. Prosecutor Gary would then have to convince the courts, through evidence of cross-examination, that Pistorius is not remorseful and that it would be in the interest of justice that he serve an adequate prison term. The states will be gunning for the minimum sentence prescription. NPA spokesperson Lou
7: the minimum sentence for murder is 15 years where the accused person is a first offender. We've got a responsibility as the NPA to ensure that we apply the provisions of the law and to ensure that we deliver justice to the victims.
13: Lawyer Ulrich Roo says the state will most likely call a member of the Stienkam family to testify in aggravation of sentencing. This is to show how the crime affected them and their lives state also needs to raise the interests of society when arguing for a sentence
3: on the state side we could definitely again see a member of the steenkamp family testifying Uh, we don't know whether the mother or the father will testify or whether it'll be the aunt again as was the case in the culpable homicide conviction but the state will do this in an attempt to show what effect this crime has had on society and especially on the immediate family of river steenkamp remember that An innocent person lost her life, um, and that the interest of of society must always be considered when sentencing is handed down.
13: The court will have to take all the evidence into account, bearing in mind three factors, the first being... Oscar Pistorius' personal circumstances, which include his current state of mind, the fact that he's already served a partial sentence, and his disability. The court will also take into consideration the interests of society and the seriousness of the crime. Rube believes there's a possibility that the judge will deviate from the minimum prescription.
3: We'll have to wait and see what evidence is presented during the, the pre-sentencing procedures. Remember that the principles of um, the interests of society, the seriousness of the offence, the personal circumstances of the accused need to be considered and they need to be blended with a measure of mercy and then a court can reach a just decision as to the sentencing. And I do think that we, we could be looking at a period of imprisonment of between six and ten years with a possible period of suspended sentence also coming into play. Remember that if he shows good behavior whilst he's incarcerated then his sentence could be reduced dramatically as well.
13: If the sentence is seen as too lenient, the state can and may appeal to the Supreme Court of Appeal. On the other hand, if a maximum sentence is delivered, Pistorius may appeal to the SCA. Judge Togozile Masipa's initial sentence on the culpable homicide conviction was received with much criticism from the public, with many calling it too lenient. I'm Nomopolani in Pretoria.
1: Let's go back in time to today in 1976. The Naledi High School branch of the South African Students Movement holds a meeting which was attended by representatives of all Soweto high schools at which it was decided that protest would be held on the 16th of June against the use of Afrikaans as a medium of education in black schools. And that was Today in History in the year 1976.
9: Good news for our listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605 47 So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605 47 Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: And finally, the misconception among black youth of the culinary and catering profession only attracting not-so-intelligent students is changing, as today the culinary hotels and tourism sector is one of the fastest-growing sectors of the global economy. This is... the view of South Africa's celebrity chef Benny Masekwameng. Last month, South Africa's unemployment rate was reported to have risen to 26.7% in the first quarter of this year. Chef Masekwameng says there are many opportunities in the industry that young people n- need not look down on.
14: You know, everybody would do what they were meant to do in this world. I wanted to do something else, but cooking was the one thing that I went back to when uh, my plan A didn't work. And uh, I chose it at a time where it was not really popular. And especially in our black community, it was looked down upon as something that you do when you're not clever, you know, where you can't do, you know, a career that is um, considered respectable, like being a doctor or an accountant, you know. I started when I was eight, but then I did it professionally from 96. Uh, when I went down to Durban to study professionally.
8: Quite interesting what you say there, Chef, um, to say that a career in catering was one that was viewed as one which um, the not-so-intelligent would consider taking up. Is it still viewed the same way? Uh, do people still have the same perception about it?
14: That has changed a lot, you know. But I think this is you know, due to exposure. And also um, the internet and also TV. The world of TV has changed our careers and, and, and our profession in a way that, you know, now people know about it. Now people know what um, it entails and, you know, how much joy you can find in, you know, doing something that you love. And um, a lot of kids now want to become chefs because of shows like MasterChef that, you know, really put our, you know, profession out there to say it's a cool thing to do. And, uh, you know, throughout the world, when you look at chefs now, you know, they're put in the same category as musicians and sports stars Mm. and actors um, because it has become something that, you know, a lot of people want to work towards it. And I'm I'm happy to say that I've seen a lot of kids, you know, away from preschool, you know, wanting to become chefs because now they know about chefs and what chefs do. Uh, It has really changed from the way that it was you know, back in the early 90s. And now Mm. it's it's a respectable profession.
8: You were a chef in one of the adapted reality television shows, uh, MasterChef South Africa. How was that for you and what did it really mean for your career?
14: The show has really opened up a whole lot of doors for me. Before I did that, I was, you know, um, in the industry for about 12 years. And then... Uh, when the show came along, it just changed my whole life completely. And obviously, you know me coming from Alex, where there's very little hope. And and now kids, they can see that, you know, they can also become um whatever they, they want to be. And, you know, for me, the show, I could identify with the contestants because they are looking for something that they always wanted to do. They're striving for a dream. And I'm also living my dream saying, you know, I also wanted to do this. And I got to do it professionally. Now I'm involved in a life-changing program that, you know, would inspire people to go um, and do whatever that they dreamt of doing, you know, from when they were kids. And it does not necessarily only mean in, in the chefing world, but just go for some, any, anything that you ever wanted to do uh, that you really feel that you love doing. Um, that you can go for it. You know, coming from where I come from and where I am right now, I look at the contestants in the same way, where when they come in for the first audition and seeing them through up until they win, you know, the competition, you know, just warms my heart because that's the same journey that I'm also on.
13: Mm. Is
8: it safe to say that you might have gotten your inspiration from your mother as she was um, running um, an informal catering kitchen?
14: Uh, Most definitely, um, you know, I would say about 75% of, you know, uh, my inspiration comes from from my mom. I mean, you know, she started this whole thing and I was cooking with her even when my dad didn't want me to do it. Like a kitchen is not a place for a man, but my mom, you know, kept on, you know, teaching me, you know, how to combine flavors and cook with her. And, yeah, I would say she's a great source of inspiration. And a lot of the things that I do, I draw from my experience as a kid. Um, and the type of food that I grew up eating.
8: And what is your typical day at work? And of course, what are some of the challenges that, you know, people in your industry would come across on a on a daily basis?
14: You know, um, when you're a chef, you know, when you're an executive chef, you are in charge of a team. A lot of the times it involves insp- inspiring, you know, um, the younger chefs. It's, you know, putting controls and measures in place to make sure that, you know, the outcome is is what uh, the company and the business has desired. But most of all is just mentoring, teaching people new ways of doing things and letting them also, you know, uh, explore their creativity, you know, but at the same time delivering, you know, quality products that we promise our guests that when you come to our restaurant, this is what you will get at this price. But it's consistently delivering that quality and promise to our guests, but also at the same time, dealing with a a lot of young creative minds that also want to be where you're at, but then just providing that uh, platform and environment for them, you know, to explore and to learn as much as they want to.
1: That was South Africa celebrity chef Benny Masa- Masekwaming speaking to Kumuzo Mopulane. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhu.
9: Oak Bay CEO, Resources and Energy Nazim Hawa says that allegations against the company are possibly an attempt to stop business with its banking institution. This comes after a weekend newspaper report suggested the Reserve Bank and the Financial Intelligence Center were investigating the Gupta family following transactions in their accounts that the Bank of Barodia holds. The newspaper report alleges that there is suspicion that the accounts were used to siphon money from the country to destinations such as Dubai. Hawa says that the report is baseless.
0: I think that is the aim of the allegations, to stop them doing business. Four of the local banks have closed our bank accounts. Certainly we have moved to another international bank to work with us. It looks to me like the agenda is to stop that bank working. With us, what we're very clear about is not one single cent of cash generated by our company in South Africa has left this country ever, ever since we launched the company, and we're, we're open to scrutiny on that issue.
9: Belgium and Rwanda have agreed to increase the volume of investments. Rwanda is a former colony of Belgium, that has made it clear that while the European country has been its long-time supporter. It should refrain from meddling in Rwandan politics. Sylvanus Karamera reports.
0: The discussion was part of the Belgian foreign minister's trip to the Great Lakes region. In this encounter, the two ministers highlighted some areas of their discussions, ranging from both countries to the political grounds in the Great Lakes region.
9: Kenya's biggest telecoms company, Safaricom, is joining up with a local software firm to launch a ride-hailing company to take on Uber as it seeks new resources of revenue. Safaricom boss, or rather CEO, Bob Collymore, says Safaricom and Nairobi-based software developer Crafter Silicon will launch the app called Little Caps in the next three weeks. Uber operates in several African countries. The Development Bank of Rwanda has entered into a fifteen million US dollar facility agreement with the Arab Bank for Economic Development in Africa to boost its lending capacity to the private sector. The signing ceremony took place yesterday at the Arab Bank for Economic Development in African headquarters in Khartoum, Sudan. The BRD chief executive, Alex Kanyakole, signed on the side of signed on the side of BRD. Sudan's annual inflation rate has risen to 13.98% in May from 12.85% in April. Prices soared in Sudan after South Sudan seceded in 2011. In December, the Sudanese pound fell to its lowest rate on the parallel market since 2011. The U.S. dollar trades at 15.20 to the South African rand, 10.78 to Botswana Pula, 1068 in Zambia, 70 British pound, 88 eight euro, gold 1274 dollars, platinum 985 dollars an ounce, brand crude 50 zero dollars, zero, 05 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Taviso Lahoku.
1: Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Figi Lelungati.
0: First up in our sports update, it's football news. Lesotho thumped Mauritius 3-0 in their opening 2016 Kosovo Cup match in a group match at the Independence Stadium in Windhoek on Sunday. It was the worst possible start for Mauritius, who conceded a goal after only 34 seconds, the quickest goal in the tournament's history. Mauritius tried to find their way back into the game after the break as Lesotho took their foot off the pedal. But despite seeing a lot of haul and ball, they struggled to break down a well-organized defense. Lesotho currently top Group B with three points, while Mauritius are bottom with zero points. Angola and Malawi are in action later. And in rugby news, South African Rugby Sevens Academy and South African Women's Sevens Select Squad were crowned champions in Italy on Saturday when both teams won their respective tournaments at the Roma Sevens played in Rome. The men's team won their fourth consecutive title by beating Brazil's national team 19-7 to in the final, while the women's team won their second invitational title by beating Kenya 40-0 in the final. The team also won the Hong Kong Invitational Tournament two months ago. After their respective finals, Werner Kock and Nadine Ruiz were also named player of the finals. Koch showed that he had fully recovered from his knee injury sustained last year and Ruiz scored 30 points in the women's finals, scoring four tries and kicking five conversions. The Springbok coach Alistair Kutzea says, is disappointed with his team's performance and results in their 26-26 loss in the opening test of the Castle Lager incoming series against Ireland at the weekend in Newlands. It was Gutierre's first test in charge of the springboks and at the same time, Ireland's first win on South African soil. Gutierre admits that it was not an ideal start to his tenure and that they would need to fix things ahead of the second test in Johannesburg. The bus.
3: To be honest with you, very, very disappoint, disappointed in both the performance and the result, obviously. It is hurting. It's not an ideal start. But, you know, as a collective, we take full responsibility for that. We have disappointed ourselves. Um, you know, and uh, I also have to give credit to, uh, to the Irish. I think with, uh, with 14 men, they, they were outstanding. Uh, we were poor. No excuses. We were poor. we understand, we've got to fix it, and we've got to come back into this competition, uh, into the series, next week, if not later than next week. So we do accept full responsibility for our performance tonight. And
0: in football news, after a torrid week in the history of Nigerian football, during which two greats, Stephen Keshi and Shuaibu Amodu, passed on burial pens, For keshi are expected to commence this week with meetings to be held with various strata of government indications have already emerged that keshi will be buried in his ancestral home of allah in delta state with the federal government ido delta and cross river states governments already indicating interest to be part of the burial ceremony most states are expected to indicate interests Family sources say Abuja, the federal capital, will be the first port of call with players of the national team expected to be led by Super Eagles keeper John Michael Orby to play a part in the burial ceremony. His children are also expected to start arriving from the United States later this week as arrangements peak for his burial. And finally with golf news, China's Wu Ashun has won the Lyonnais Open at the Diamond Country Club in Austria. The one shot from Spain's Adrian
9: Otegi, Mark Tompkins report. The two had been neck and neck coming down the straight after birdies on 15 and 16 for the Spaniard. But a bogey on 17 gave Wu his opportunity and he didn't waste it to win his second title on the European Tour but first on European soil. Richard McAvoy took a creditable third place after a final round 69 and another Englishman, James Morrison, was fourth after a 68. Xander Lombard, the South African, didn't really get going today. A two-over par round of 74 for him, a double bogey on 14, really cost him. He finished at nine under par, and Gary Stahl headed up a group of players on eight under. Among them, defending champion Chris Wood, the best round of the week for him to finish off with a 68. But it's Wu the champion. He finished at 13 under par with a one-shot advantage to lift the title. That's just what news at this hour.
0: Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zola. Africa Amuka Na unai.
1: Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour concerns over rising attacks on oil facilities in Nigeria and disgraced South African sprinter Oscar Pistorius returns to court today for sentencing. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabo, Producers Komutaramagadz and Jane Rabutata. Technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team. Thank you. Rather, Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team. Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Now taking us to the top of an hour for the news, on the frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty-one meter band to South and Africa is Barita with a song titled Tandoluit.
15: And no, if not. Oh my